Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Our guest today is Tim Draper. Tim is a top global venture capitalist, having founded Draper Associates and DFJ. The firm's investments include many stellar companies, which you will be quite familiar with. Tim is a leading spokesperson for Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and ICOs, which are initial coin offerings for those of you who are unfamiliar with that acronym. Tim has also led investments in the companies that would issue two of the largest ICOs, Tezos and Bancor. In promoting entrepreneurship, Tim created Draper University of Heroes, a residential school based in San Mateo, California, to help extraordinary people accomplish their life missions. We'll be speaking with Tim about this too in a little bit. So as you might guess, our topic on Looking Forward today is entrepreneurship. Hi, Tim. Welcome to Looking Forward. Great, Jeff. Thanks for having me on the show. It's, it's a pleasure to have you, Tim. Tim, can you please tell us a bit about your background, how you became interested in entrepreneurship, and got involved in global venture capitalism? Well, great. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, my grandfather was the first Silicon Valley venture capitalist. My dad was a big wow. pioneer in venture capital. Um, I didn't really have it in my mind that I would become a venture capitalist, but when I got out of business school, I joined a firm that was both an investment banker and a venture capital firm, uh, Alex Brown and Sons. And, and so when I saw what venture capital was, I thought it was sort of perfect for me because I had kind of a little entrepreneur in me, but not enough to dedicate my total life to one thing. Sure. Sure. And, uh, and I had, uh, and I had a good finance background. I was an electrical engineering major. I kind of had, what I needed for venture capital moving forward. And, uh, and then when I started uh, on my own, I, um, I levered up an SBA, an existing SBIC. I borrowed $6 million against a $2 million uh, group of private companies. And the SBA just said, okay. <laughs> and they've been happy about it because I've one of the, the stars now, but at the time, Three years into it, it looked like I was going to lose all their money. Wow. But it gave me a way to go and try things and fail and grow and figure out what was going to work and what didn't. And, uh, and fortunately, we had some big successes. We were able to pay back the SBA. Uh, we were able to, I was able to set up a fund. Of, I had a record then, a track record. And I could, um, I brought in a partner I'd worked with at Alex Brown, John Fisher, and the two of us started to build Draper Associates, which eventually came, became Draper Fisher Associates and then Draper Fisher Jurvetson. And it grew to be one of the top firms in the world uh, for, and we kind of were on the very top for a period because we had been the, the first venture fund who, who went into China first Silicon Valley venture capitalist went into China and we were the first to set up a global fund 
that, that invested outside the Silicon Valley and that, that went into Baidu and Skype. So we, we kind of had the top of the top and then we brought in a bunch of partners and it got to be really big and I realized that I was better off going solo. And so I spun off and started Draper Associates again. Okay. And, uh, and that has been incredibly successful. I've been very lucky. I built the school, I built Draper University, and then I made some investments that turned out beautifully. And uh, so then I, I started to build up uh, an institution, but another institution. But I, I realized that um, venture capital is better with fewer decision makers. Uh, too many decision makers uh, end up with average decisions. And, uh, and it's because it doesn't have that passion or that like oddness about it that can create something great. You need something. If you're going to fund a company, it's got to be something a little bit out there. It's got to be something very futuristic or where, where it isn't obvious to people. And that's where you make all your money. So I had to kind of realize that and realize that concentrated decision-making force was going to be more effective. And it has proved to be that way. Uh, so we've, we've had an amazing, build an amazing uh, venture practice. It just keeps growing and businesses we've been able to back have been varied and very exciting. And, and recently we put together a show called Meet the Drapers where it's like Shark Tank, only the viewers can, can invest. And that, uh, that's been really great for deal flow too. So we, we now have 9 million people watching Meet the Drapers. Wow, so we actually have, have a larger audience. It's international, but it's a larger audience than Shark Tank has. Wow. <laughs> I'd love to hear more about that later. You say so many things there that I could comment on. First of all, Alex Brown, that was the first brokerage firm that I invested in to buy a stock. I remember oh, Alex Brown for you. way back when. Second of all, Electrical engineering, what an interesting start to your career. You know, I would have thought, you know, you went to Harvard. I know you got your MBA, but I would have thought like Wharton, you know, I'm a Wharton guy and I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to be on Wall Street. No, electrical engineer was how you start. The other thing, and, and we could go on and on just from what you said there, is the idea, and quite candidly, this is one of my downfalls and why I wasn't phenomenally successful you have to be willing to take a pretty big risk. You really do. And I yeah, wasn't ever able to do that, Tim. I just couldn't quite get myself to do that. And, and you did sometimes it. that risk is simple. And sometimes you're forced into it. And sometimes it's, um, it's just the right time. Uh, and, and a lot of people don't find that, that right time to take a risk. And if you don't, then that's fine. We grab people at Draper University for five weeks and we encourage them to fail. We encourage them to try things and fail and fail again until they succeed. And, uh, and that's even a part of our, our mantra. Our mantra says, I will fail and fail again until I succeed. It's a, a longer thing. It says, I will promote freedom at all costs. And there, there are a bunch of really kind of good value systems that we, we try to impart on these potential entrepreneurs. And we try to encourage them by sh sort of showing them what the downside is. Uh, we have survival training. We have other hackathons. We have ways of getting them to see what the downside is of failure 
And then they go, well, yeah, that wasn't so bad. Uh, it was bad, but it wasn't so bad. So then they kind of go, okay, now I realize I, the sky's the limit. I can try anything or space is the limit or the universes are the limit or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. They, they start thinking bigger and they start thinking, yeah, I can try that. And it's interesting, the students coming out of Draper University, both the uh, hero training, which is in the Silicon Valley and our online training, which we really created about 10 years ago, but only since COVID did we, did we really blow it out. Yeah. The students that come out of Draper University seem to, you know, maybe a third of them go off and start businesses. And some of those become very successful and have, we've, we've had, we've got some great companies under our belt now. Um, but the other ones either go back to school. If they go back to school, their grades either go way up or way down. They go way down because then they have a side project that's the entrepreneurial project. <laughs> yeah. But they go way up because they're so much more interested in learning about whatever it is. Yeah. And then the other thing that happens is if they join a company after they've been to Draper University, they get promoted super fast. And the reason is they're willing to stick their necks out. They're willing to try things. Uh, so if there's nothing else I've imparted on these students and, and maybe on your group, it's go and fail and try stuff. The schools don't let you fail. They, they tell you, you get an A if you, if you uh, don't make any mistakes. Well, it turns out life's not like that. It's very dynamic. Things change. I remember when I learned in school, absolutely, that Saturn had nine moons and Jupiter had 12 moons. <laughs> turns out there are 26 moons around Jupiter now, and probably more. And Saturn has an infinite number of moons. And for, for us, we had to memorize that fact. And if I had said Saturn had an infinite number of moons, I would have been wrong on the paper. But it's just a way, a way of understanding that the world changes, it keeps moving. And, uh, and so we are, we are looking for flexibility, dynamism, a willingness to try, a willingness to test different things, theories throw something out there, find out if there are customers for it, pull back if they're not, try something else. That's the spirit of the place. And it has been, um, it's been really effective for a lot of people. It sounds wonderful. We, we're yeah. going to, we'll come back to that a little later. Again, I could say a lot about what you've said. A couple things I wrote down, a lot of interesting stuff here, obviously failure. Failure is another word in a sense for rejection. And rejection can be very hard to take. But you find that, oddly enough, the more times you get rejected, the less painful it can be. But you do need to have an occasional success. You need a, an occasional yes. Every once in a while, you need to have that pellet there that you can grab that, yeah, you know, it isn't always rejection or failure. You're absolutely right. The other thing you have, to, to, you have to have that optimism to realize that it's, it takes more failure before you succeed. Entrepreneurs, some of the best entrepreneurs I've backed went to 25 venture capitalists, pitched them, and I was the first one to say yes. And those tended to be the biggest companies. But there's, there's more to it than that. It's not like it was a stagnant pitch that just had to find me. It was a pitch that kept improving. They rethought their business. Every time they got turned down, they 
They got better at it. They figured out their market more. They tested customers. They, they grew it. And by the time they got to me, it was like, you guys have figured it out. And so, uh, so never be put too put off by that first rejection because, or, or the second or the third or the fourth, because you evolve. We've had uh, interesting, a lot of our investors came from China. And then when China locked up because of the new <laughs> dictator, <laughs> yeah, we had to refind investors. We had to go find other investors to replace them. And it's been a struggle. And we've learned that there are, learned a few things. There are millions more venture capitalists than there were when we started out. And there's lots more competition. And so it's a tougher sale than it used to be, hmm. particularly with institutions. And, and so I've, I've learned not just about that, but I've also evolved my thinking as a venture capitalist. What is it that these investors are looking for? But also, how do we connect the investor to the entrepreneur better than we are now? And that's going to help evolve my venture firm. And that's exciting. That changes everything. It makes the journey continue to grow and thrive. And, you know, you think, oh, wow, everything's great. He's figured this out. He's made a bunch of money, whatever. No, there's always a new challenge every day. Many new challenges that I have to kind of face and try things and succeed, fail, and then figure, figure out where to go next. And that's so true. Every day, there's an opportunity to learn something and I try to tell my children this, Tim, that, and I do this myself, when you make a mistake, write down what the mistake was. I mean, of significance, write it down, and it's a lesson learned, and hopefully you won't do it again. So you can at least profit from that mistake. And this is what this person or these people did when they came to you after being rejected so many times is they polished their act, they saw what the objections might have been, and they learned from all those experiences. They didn't present the same plan to you as they had to the people before them. There's always an opportunity to learn. And similarly, what I was going to mention from what you said earlier was, you're looking for people who have vision. They can imagine things that might not quite be out there yet, but you see them as something that could be possible in the future. And people have vision they're just so important to all of us, whether they be creatively visionaries or visionaries in a technological sense. Vision is just so important. And that's what you, that's what you thrive on is, is vision, right? Um, yeah. And, and, and vision can be learned. It's a way of thinking. It's, it's sort of saying, it's like going four or five chess moves ahead. It's saying, okay, the world is, you know, obsessed with this COVID thing. And, and the people without vision say, let's go make masks. You know, the people with vision say, when all is said and done, about half the people are going back to work and the other half aren't. They're going to work from home or they're going to do something else. So that's going to be different. Commercial real estate's going to be different. Travel might be a little less. People might actually defect to a, a Zoom call rather than going and meeting. But then there are going to be other things that are big problems potentially that need to be solved. A lot of emotional problems have happened because of COVID. In fact, there are probably more issues there than there are actual cases of COVID. 
where people are going through a terrible emotional time. I wouldn't doubt you on that one, Tim. I really they, wouldn't. Uh, and then as various governments go back to tribalism from globalism, you're creating starvation in many countries. The UN just published something that said, yeah, you know, this protection may have saved 10,000 lives around the world, but uh, there will be 135 million people dying of starvation because the supply chains have been cut off. Mm. And, and so, you know, these politicians are thinking like right now, uh, it's only the visionary politicians that are saying, you know, we may be better with herd immunity, take a few hits now so that we don't have 135 million people die of starvation. It's a thing that a lot of people don't kind of go through. They don't think the the derivative effects of different policy decisions. And like the press is always, what's going on today? And where's the shiny object today? The visionary looks at that and has some awareness of it, but is actually kind of thinking, okay, well, what will we want in five to 15 years? And I use those two numbers specifically because every entrepreneur should really be thinking 15 years out because it will happen in five years. Yeah, it's a good way of looking at it. It'll happen faster than when we think. Nobody realizes how fast it all happens. When I watched Star Trek way back when, when I was a kid, I'd look and I'd go, oh my God, they have a communicator. You just do this and you're talking to whoever you want to talk to. I mean, we got that. We got so much more than that. Yes. The tricorder readings and the you know, we, we have all those things and much, much more. And I think humans underestimate how, when we have a new invention, how it accelerates other, other inventions. So like the Tesla was this new breakthrough in electric cars. It also moved to electric scooters and electric trucks and whatever else, but it also opened people's minds and they went, hey, why don't we reinvent transportation? And that brought on Uber and Lyft. And then it brought on these, you know, SkyTran, the monorail that runs on just fixed magnets and, and these jetpack companies, the jetpack automation and auto, aviation or, uh, or gravity. It, it got people starting to think, or, or these vertical takeoff and landing companies, got people starting to think, hey, there are better ways. All of a sudden, hey, Elon and his team and, and uh, the guys who invented Tesla, they came up with something that is better than all the other cars out there. So we can come up with something that's better in transportation. So breakthroughs, the internet opened up communications, information, gaming, education, all sorts of industries. Yes. I believe that actually now Bitcoin, the blockchain, smart contracts, artificial intelligence, and surveillance are going to open up industries that are much bigger. They're going to be like insurance and banking and commerce and government and healthcare are all going to be affected now. They haven't, those industries have not really been much affected by the internet, maybe a little, but, but no startup has sort of disintermediated them. Now these startups have the ability to do that. And this is going to change everything. People are going to resist. You know, I mean, they, they resist the change. If they don't, if, if it's not completely obvious, the, the incumbents will fight to the death to keep it the way it is. Just the way some governments are keeping tribalism, even though they know we're a global world. 
again, you say such great stuff and it prompts me to think of things. Hegel, I learned this in college. I don't know why I still remember it. I forgot most of what I learned, but he talked about the thesis and the antithesis. And there's always the conflict between the two. The thesis is the prevailing thought. The antithesis is the new thought. And there's that fight. There is that fight. Eventually, the, the antithesis becomes the thesis. The other thing I wanted to say, again, I'm, I'm trying so to... So the thesis, though, would be the entrepreneur, and the antithesis would be the incumbents, wouldn't they? Would resist the thesis. You come up with a new thesis, the incumbents go, wait, no, this can't be right, because this is the way we've thought of it. You could be right. It could have been that way. But I just remember those two words and the conflict, the existing the yeah, there is a quo versus change, that constant battle, the inertia. The other thing is, and this is, again, I'm being very glib here. I used to give talks about marketing to people over 50. And Lord knows, here it is, right? I was 38. I was giving these talks. But anyway, there were, Wayne Gretzky. It's harder, had to, it's harder to market to people over 50. I it know is. That. It is. And Wayne Gretzky, you remember he had the great line, I don't skate to where the puck is, I skate to where the puck is going. Right. Which is, again, kind of what you're saying. Moving on, can you talk a little bit, Tim, about the companies that you now have, uh, DA, DFJ, if I got that right, Draper Associates, and you can remember DFJ, and, and what their focus is. And you alluded to this, but I'd, I'd like you to speak again briefly too, not that it's not worth talking a lot about, some of the great companies that you invested in, where maybe somebody was the, the inventor who came to you, the entrepreneur who came to you, and he was seeking your money, your assistance when he had been rejected so many times and turned into a big success. So yeah, speak um, about that. There, there are many. Hotmail was like that. They had been to 25 investors, and they were sort of wondering why they why I was the one who said yes, because after I, I suggested that they put a message at the bottom of everybody's screen that says, P.S., I love you, get your free email at Hotmail. <laughs> but this guy's nuts. And uh, I kept pushing, pushing, pushing. And finally, they did it without the P.S., I love you. And it went to 11 million users in 18 months. It spread like crazy. And that was the beginning of viral marketing. I still think they should have kept the P.S. I love you. We would have had a much more peaceful and loving world. But still, spread yeah. communications around the world. It was a big, big success. Yeah. I think uh, we also took that same viral marketing message to Skype as Skype came up with audio. And I had a fun conversation. I, I was supposed to be at a conference in Silicon Valley. At the same time, I was supposed to be at a Skype board meeting in Estonia. And I, I realized I'd have to do one or the other by video conference. And this is before, that's what video conferences were like back then. And Skype was only audio. And I said, hey, can we do it by video conference? And the conference organizer was very nice and said, okay. And I went and he said, can you interview the guy who's starting Skype? I hear that's sort of a hot new startup. And I said, sure, yeah, I'm happy to do that. So I get Nicholas, and Nicholas says, uh, I say, can you get a, a video conference machine in, a, in Estonia? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll do that. And we arrive, and we're sitting in this little room, and, and Nicholas Sandstrom, the founder of Skype, says, okay, throw the switch. And I went, what? And he goes, never mind. And we had this whole conference and and uh and it worked beautifully we checked with the people at the conference they said that 
they could see the pores in our skin and everything was amazing and clear and it was fantastic. And Nicholas is chuckling and he said, that was the first Skype video conference ever. And I said, wow, we've got a winner. And yeah. he goes, not so fast, Tim. We cut off a 100,000 simultaneous audio calls in order to get the bandwidth to put that conference together. <laughs> so these entrepreneurs will do whatever it takes to make it a success. And, and that actually led to eBay seeing that and eBay buying the company. Uh, so it was, it was pretty interesting. I kind of look around at hobbyists and there are a lot of hobbyists in electric cars. And one guy, Ian Wright, took me in this electric car and, and it was like a little, uh, it was put strung together with PVC tubing and he made me do a five point buckle. And I said, God, really? And he said, yeah, trust me. And I'm thinking electric car, it's going to be like a golf cart. And he took off like a rocket and then he stopped on a dime. And I had no idea that an electric car could be like that. Yeah. And uh, that was the beginning. And I, I went and I interviewed a bunch of people and they were all saying, well, we're better than Tesla in this way or better than Tesla in this way. So I said, well, we better meet with Tesla. And so we went and met with Art Martin Eberhard, who was the founder of Tesla. And he wowed us and he said, and we've got this new battery that creates more torque. And if one of them goes out because these lithium ions explode, uh, if one of them goes out, we can route around it and the car still works fine. And that was technology that was well beyond what everybody else had. The rest of them were just like one big lithium ion battery. So we backed them and, and then, you know, we ran out of money and Elon came in. Um, he was an earlier investor. And he said, oh, look, I'll put in 10 million, but I've got to run this company. And the moment he did that, it was like, sure, Elon, run it. Sure. Any company, you run it, baby. And he came in and he took it and it was I mean, talk about failing and failing again. He'd run out of money in Tesla and he'd borrow from SpaceX and then vice versa. And then he figured out how he could buy the Numi plan in Fremont for like five cents on the dollar because they weren't making cars there anymore because, you know, union costs got too high or whatever. And he just figured, well, we're going to go in with a bunch of robots and we'll just use this plant. It was big success. And then he also went to the federal government and somehow was able to, to get one of these clean energy loans. Yeah. And all of that kind of came together. And then he, you know, we all said, well, we want one. And he said, okay, you're going to have to pay in advance for it. And you're probably not going to get delivery for two years. <laughs> and we all did it anyway. And, and he helped fund his company by getting pre-orders and, and having those. And we all knew we were at risk. We bought these cars. And, and so that was a wonderful, unique experience. And now Tesla, I mean, it's a quarter of a trillion dollar market cap. That company is rocking and rolling. And then I backed um, these guys and they laugh. They say, we were creating a new brokerage firm and nobody wanted to invest except Draper was stupid enough to do it. <laughs> and now that's Robin Hood. Oh, they're doing well. And we, you know, we backed them when it was a $11 million market cap and now it's 12 billion. Uh, now it's, and maybe bigger because it's growing like a weed. So we've been involved in a lot of, and I think we've got 35, 36 unicorns in the port who've made it 
from our early investment, like where we seeded the company and it became a big unicorn. We've done it about 36 times. And that's great because then we get, I get to look and go, wow, yeah, those were some pretty great companies that got started. You know, um, in a sense, Tim, is it's almost like they're ba- your babies, right? They're almost like yeah. babies that grew yeah. up. And, <laughs> you know, look, I raised this thing and now it's on its own and it's able to fly and do what it needs to do. Yeah, and they don't need me anymore. <laughs> and, and, they, and they don't need you anymore. <laughs> I give out my email address. I'm Tim at Draper.vc. But only send me business plans. Or unless you're an investor, you want to invest. But only send me business plans. You will go immediately to my fam list if you try to sell me anything else. Got to be Tim thought out. Draper.vc and... Uh, and by giving that away, it generates more deal flow and, and we get a chance to see more, more of what the future might look like. And that's the exciting part on your end is you're seeing what pitches people are making about what might be the future. It's like going to the World's Fair when I was a kid, looking at all the new things that might be coming out. It was exciting. Like the telephone that you, where you could see the person. Exactly. Yeah. Who would imagine, right? Who would, my whole dating, my whole dating life would have been different, Tim. Can you imagine? (laughs) You sort of alluded to this with what you were just saying, but let's get a little bit more specific. What determines whether or not your companies invest in a company? And has that changed over the years in any way, Tim? From the learnings, you yeah. know, you're yeah. Well, we used to. There used to not be that much deal flow. We, I would knock on doors of any new construction place where some of the the companies were called something software. That was how I got started. Um, or I'd go to all the other venture capitalists and say, "Hey, give me the things that you've rejected." But then my profile got bigger, venture capital got bigger. People started to realize they could uh, really accelerate their businesses if they took venture capital and so then I got deal flow in and that has continued to grow. And so now it's more of a filtering business where I look at deal flow and I say, is this market big enough? Is the technology unique? Is the team uniquely qualified and dedicated? You know, what's funny is everybody else in the venture business is always saying, well, this could go wrong or this could go wrong or this could go wrong. Plenty of things can go wrong. I say, what if it works? And if it works, then I've got a winner. And it's a winner to bet on. I I don't know how it's going to all come out. But what if it works and it becomes a great success? What will the customers look like? What will they be willing to pay for the service? What will the the world look like? What, What will humans, how will humans change? All those questions. And, uh, and if it's a very positive, future, then I'm inclined to do the investment. Tim, how again is that different from Tim Draper 20 years ago or 25 years ago? Are, are you just, I guess, well, I was, you I was still getting more proposals. You clearly are getting more proposals than you were back in the days, but you've fine-tuned it. You've probably fine-tuned it, right? Um, yeah. Well, I did more than just technology back then. I opened, I, I would invest in a number of different things. I backed Parenting Magazine. and That was a success that sold to Time Magazine because I was just kind of interested in whatever business was there. But then I realized I did really have an edge in technology. I had a good sense for what was coming next. I, I did have a background in it. And I think that that advantage 
help me focus more on technologies. And I think there are a few other things that we do now that we may not have done before, which are how do you create a viral marketing program? How do you create and how do you make your customer into your sales force? So a lot of what I often do is business modeling with the entrepreneur before I've even invested. I work with them and say, well, you know, maybe this isn't the right model. You've got kind of a good idea but in an interesting market, but maybe the model should be adjusted. Uh, so I do more of that now than I did before. And I think I do spend a lot more time with entrepreneurs now than I did then, but fewer minutes with each one. I see. Would you say off the top of your head, out of, out of 10, you might even seriously consider how many will actually go through, Tim? How many will you actually put your capital yeah, into? We, we get about 20,000 a year and we invest oh in about 20. Oh my goodness. Yeah. 20,000. Yeah. Um, and seriously look at about 1,000, 2,000, something like that. Wow. Yeah, it might, might be sort of 20,000, 2,000 serious, and then 20 that we invest in. And that's for a lot of different reasons. Some are better off without us. Some took too much money, and there's no way to kind of re-put the genie back in the bottle or whatever. Some have just small goals. Some are going up against better competitors. So they're, they're those kinds of things that happen. And some are just, you know, not even close to something that we would do, something that might be better for a different type of investor. Yeah, so a lot of, there's a lot of filtering that goes on. Then when we meet with them, yeah, their odds are, pretty, are somewhat better once they've had a meeting. Yeah, I, I was going to say that I think it's a lot tougher to get past you than it is to get into Harvard. <laughs> oh, yeah. <Sure. laughs> wow. It's getting harder and harder to get into Draper University. <laughs> Get on meet the Drapers. It's getting harder. All of that's harder. It's still easy to go get into the Draper University online school, and the the winners from that can get a ride, a free ride into Draper University of Heroes, and then from there we can take them and do great things with them. Boy, that that it sounds so exciting just to hear you talk about this stuff. With looking forward. We also do a little bit of looking backward. So over the last decade or so, as you look at the global world of entrepreneurship, how has it changed, Tim? Are the entrepreneurs themselves or would-be entrepreneurs, are they much different than they would have been 10, 15 or so years ago? Are the people who are involved in venture capital much different? Are ventures started differently? Can you speak about that, please? Well, most startups now are aware that venture capital exists. And so they are interested in going and getting venture capital because there, there are a number of things that can happen when you get the capital, and it's not just the capital. Then you have a little more credibility. It's like that Harvard stamp, you know, it's like super yes. associates invested in you. Boom. And that can help other people come in and and then customers get a little more confident and it starts to build and they uh, and so there's some value just to that and i don't think that was true many years ago i think many years ago people were still trying to figure out whether they should just run and own their business completely the way they do 
or whether they would borrow from a bank or whatever. Uh, venture capital is a new concept in a lot of parts of the world. Now, pretty much around the world, uh, an entrepreneur can find venture capital. And so that's a positive. And then other things that have changed, I think there are more venture capitalists for sure. And there are more entrepreneurs too. And an entrepreneur that used to be able to just do a little better than what's out there now and build a business that way, can't do that. You have to be a quantum leap for you're a, a real entrepreneur that can do a lot. And then the internet has changed a lot. The smartphone has changed a lot because things happen faster and you can communicate. You can learn a lot about people in a very short period of time. Bitcoin has changed a lot and will continue to change a lot of businesses and a lot of things that are happening in banking and insurance and government. And so all those things are coming. And I think at least in the Silicon Valley, this feeling like, hey, if this is the current state of the art, I can do this and make it make a create a better environment for the customer. I think that's prevalent throughout the Silicon Valley and starting to spread to other parts of the world. It's not as weird to be an entrepreneur. And you kind of got into the next thing I, I was thinking of asking you, Tim, which is the state of entrepreneurship today. It sounds like it's very good. I mean, if you're getting 20,000 proposals and that's just you, that's tremendous indication of what's happening. If you can elaborate on that a little bit, and also, it's certainly not just a Silicon Valley phenomenon. Is this a United States phenomenon? Is it a global phenomenon? Talk a little bit about that, please. The way we, we call it the global Silicon Valley, we, we think of it as Silicon Valley phenomenon because there are parts of the world, Bangalore, India, Singapore, Seoul, Korea, that are more like the Silicon Valley than, say, Columbus, Ohio, or you know, some parts of the Midwest. You need that ongoing innovation-driven, you know, I, I would have said Beijing and Shanghai, but I don't believe that anymore. I think you put in a dictator who starts taking everything away from you, and nobody's gonna wanna build for the future. But anyway, I call it the global Silicon Valley. Some, somebody else coined that term, I think Tony Perkins did. And I think that's what it is. Like Washington, D.C. is so far from that, that the senators, our presumed representatives, didn't even know how Mark Zuckerberg made money. I mean, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting there interviewing the guy, but Mr. Zuckerberg, how do you make money? Talk about a disconnect, huh? Yeah. Like they, they're so far away from us in so many ways. Yeah. And here's something else that I've thought about, and I've talked a little bit about tribal and global. We've become a global society, and we were tribal. And tribalism made sense for a while because we were protecting ourselves from each other. And globalism happened around the internet, and we realized we're all better off because of it. Something else that I've noticed as I've traveled around the world is you show me a, a poor country, and that's a country where trust is nowhere where the leaders are corrupt and there is no trust in business and they think of it as a zero sum game. And as a result, people think short term and they don't build anything for the future and nothing gets built and they end up poor. And you show me a rich country and I'll show you a trusting country. Singapore, most trustworthy country probably in the world, 
they have brought their economy from average uh, per capita of $100 to $36,000 over the last 40, 40 wow. 50 years. And it's all about everybody in Singapore is honest and straightforward. And so they're building for a long-term future. They can do that because they trust the people around them. I've built my entire business on trust. I hand money over to people for some ethereal thing called <laughs> stock or cryptocurrency or whatever. Um, and I hand it over and it, it turns out well on the whole. People live up to that trust. And it's interesting. All you need are leaders that build trust. And I think as you move forward the next 40 years, trust will be number one still. But I also think it will be globalism and openness that is what drives successful countries in the future. I think it's important to have open borders, open trade, free trade, free markets. I think that's really important because otherwise, you know, I, if I if I have the farm and you have the house and we don't do a deal, um, you die of starvation and I die of exposure. Um, <laughs> and, and that same thing, multiply that by eight billion people. We're all supporting each other in the free market economy. And when you when you pull a piece of that economy out and you stick, you isolate your people, you're in effect shooting yourself in the foot because you're isolating your people to the detriment of your own people. And I also think the embracing of new technologies will drive the success of these countries in the future. You know, as China shut down, um, there was a big brain drain out, but you know, like the guy uh, who started Binance, CZ, he built a $10 billion company in China. And China tells him that, that now Bitcoin's illegal there. So he, he decides, he moves, he moves, it was going to be to Japan or Singapore. He went to Singapore because Japan made Bitcoin a national currency right after that. He went to Singapore and then Singapore got a little heavy handed, too many regulations. And he went to Malta and all of a sudden the business boomed, probably worth $50 billion. Today. Wow. And that just left China. So yeah. China lost $50 billion in value. Yeah. What, you know, and think of how many jobs that is. That's, that's about a, that might be a million jobs. Wow. That just walked out. And people are going to do that. And you're going to end up with, if you are a controlling and you're focused on the old ways, the, the tribalism and controlling everybody and having the government decide what everybody has to do, your country is going to be poor and uneducated. And if you focus on educating people, freeing them up, and building trust, your country's going to be rich. That's all there is to it. And you know, so, Jim, I, I agree with you. It, it's so simple, yet it seems like it's hard to change some of these things. But the other thing that I would add to that, and you're doing it with Draper, but let's face it, Draper is not for five-year-olds. Ever since I've been an adult, I've thought that my education, I'm talking about from the time I was a kid, was somewhat misdirected. I should have been taught life skills, conflict resolution, money management, how to manage a, you know, a household, just getting along with people, learning that diversity is not a bad thing. And, and those are things, unfortunately, either we never learn them or we learn them a little later on through experience. Another one I'm forgetting is failure. Draper, yeah. 
failure, right? We got to learn even as kids. It's okay, Jimmy. You got that one wrong. It's okay. Well, I mean, it's pretty clear that the um, teachers union bosses have flattened education. And so there has been no progress in public education, at least in California, for years and years and years, 50 years maybe. We've gone from number one, California's gone from number one in education to number 46, something like that, in that 50-year time period. And it's because they're just saying, we've done it this way, we're never going to change it. Everybody does it this way. This is the way it's done. And, uh, and that's completely teachers union bosses. They, they like it the way it is. They want more teachers, so they pay more dues. That's it. Education is absolutely critical. And, and what have they taken away? Here's what they've taken away. Home economics, it's no longer taught. It's absolutely exactly what you say. They've taken away home economics. And get this, they've te- taken away binary math. Okay, binary math is why we're speaking to each other on a system of a couple of computers and a whole bunch of wires today. Binary math is unbelievably important, and they don't teach it. Yeah. And, and they, now they teach, I'm not sure what, uh, but it's certainly, you know, if you're lucky, you're taught the same things that were taught 50 years ago. If you're unlucky, they're teaching you. I mean, apparently, they polled all the math teachers in California. The average math teacher got in the 25th percentile in math and hates math. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> something doesn't seem right about that, Tim. Something, oh, something doesn't seem right about that. They had to dumb down the SATs a couple of times. I mean, it's, there's something very wrong in education, and it's because it's controlled. It isn't free to operate. I focused very hard at one point on trying to uh, allow school vouchers and charters around the world, around the country, and they would have allowed teachers to innovate and try new things and, and grow the way all of these other things have gotten better. I mean, everything's gotten better except these things that have been government controlled. So you got to let them go. You got to let people choose the school that's right for them. You got to let the schools innovate. It can't all be to a test that's 50 years old. It's got to be like, how are we training people to do conflict resolution? How are we training people to work as a team? I mean, that was our big innovation at Draper University is we make everybody operate in a team. And they're they're like fish out of water. They're thinking they have to do it all for the individual. And I'm saying, well, look, your team's not doing, you know, they say, look what I've done. And then I say, look, your team's not doing very well. You know, What's happening there? And they say, oh, they're horrible, whatever. They're not, not, do, not pulling their weight. And I say, well, that's your team. <laughs> that's your team, exactly. And, and look, I think team effort in school yeah, it should be, and, and it just takes a little more creativity. It, yeah. it takes more than what they've been putting into it. Like it, and it's always, I mean, God, let's face it. We've always, we've had the same textbook manufacturers for 50 years. We've had the same And it's interesting, Tim, when I hear you talk, it's almost like you're just about at the other end of the spectrum. There's resistance to change, which is way on one side, 
and you're on the other end of the scale, which is innovation, innovation, try something new. You know, you see, it's actually not so bad. But yeah, you're going to fail. Sometimes you're going to fail. But but it all kind of comes back to that. I somehow had this either my genetic makeup or maybe it was just uh, nurtured in me that hey, I failed a whole bunch of times and it didn't really affect me that much. I might as well just keep trying things and failing. And then I realized that change is the thing that is there forever. Change keeps coming forever. Like if you're, there's a great irony of life. The people who took the safe jobs out of Harvard Business School ended up with real trouble. Like it wasn't safe. And the people who took the big risks were safe at the end. And yeah, yeah, weird irony. Another irony of life, if you're an entrepreneur and you say, um, why am I doing it? I'm doing it for the money. You never make money. And if you say I'm doing it for whatever else, whatever else, customer or whatever, that's when you make the money. Yeah, that, that is very interesting. Those paradoxes. You have to have a passion for it in some other way besides just the money that it may make, it may not make. But if that's the only thing that drives you, you're right. I really appreciate the things you've said, Tim. We're going to end this by having you tell people how they might reach you again. I know you alluded to that. You've got a book. And in addition to that, you've got Draper University. How do people find out about all of these things? Yeah, I did write a book, How to Be the Startup Hero. And, uh, and so go ahead and look that up. You can get it on Amazon. Sometimes we give the Kindle version away from, for free, but only when we're allowed to. They have, they have windows. I'm Tim at draper.vc. So if you have a business plan, please send it my way. I recommend you go to draperuniversity.com. And that's where you can sign up for our two-week entrepreneurial online program and for our six-week hero training program. And then tune in to Meet the Drapers. It is a hilarious show. It's great fun. You get to see a lot of startups and you can actually invest through a crowdfunding campaign. You can put $100 behind something. How do they find Meet the Drapers? How do they find oh, Go to meetthedrapers.com. Meetthedrapers.com. Okay. Yeah. Tim, it's been wonderful having you on. Loved listening to your perspectives. Thank you again. Hey, this was fun. Great. You're a great interviewer. It was terrific. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, Jeff dash ostroff.com that's j-e-f-f dash ostroff o-s-t-r-o-f-f dot com this is jeff ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on looking forward <laughs>